The following is a presentation of Paul White Ministries. Today's sermon is a teaching session that we did for Taleo Online, a grace-based program featuring teachings from different ministries. This lesson is from the course titled Hearts Established in Grace and is the first of two lessons in the course featuring that title. I contributed 10 lessons to the online school, five of which have never been released to our audience. This lesson is one of those five. If you're interested in Taleo, I encourage you to visit their website and look at the various courses they offer. You can find them at taleobibleschool.com. I hope you enjoy this lesson from the book of Hebrews titled Hearts Established by Grace. For more information on our ministry, visit paulwhiteministries.com. If you enjoy a daily walk through the Bible, check out our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts or visit our audio-only site, deeperdaily.com. Hello and welcome to Hearts Established by Grace, a study in Hebrews. This is part one of two parts as we will spend the next couple of hours, one here and one in part two, dealing with the wonderful book of Hebrews, a book that has had a profound impact on my own life and one that has become a favorite of mine through all seasons of life. I like to say that uh, the book that I like the most is the one I'm reading at the moment. Uh, but in all reality, if I had to pick um, any books of the Bible that I could, only those could I read the rest of my life, without a doubt, one of those books would be Hebrews. And it would be a list that the shorter it got, it'd be harder to knock Hebrews off of that list. The reason this book made such a profound impact on my life was several years ago, I taught it through week by week one verse at a time, sometimes a single verse in a week, sometimes big chunks. And when I finished, I, I basically realized that the reason the Holy Spirit took me on that journey was so that my heart could be established in His grace in a way that I don't think was possible without what Hebrews had to say. That leads me to laying out a verse that really makes up the fundamental of our title for the next couple of sessions, and that is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. There's a lot being said to me in this verse, but primarily what it says is that there are strange doctrines in the world and none of them are the doctrine of grace. Grace, by which we realize the the, the inheritance of heaven is ours through no works of our own, is the method that is going to establish our hearts. Our hearts are tossed about to and fro with strange doctrines. Our minds are tossed about in a world that is vying for our attention. But the book of Hebrews, when you take it top to bottom, left to right, and you take in the message that it's trying to portray, I think you'll walk away with a heart established in grace. I like to say this, when I went into the study of Hebrews, I had a head full of grace scriptures. I had a lot of things about the finished work, about the grace of God, about the new covenant that I had an understanding of, a smattering of knowledge. I had a lot of scripture, a lot of stories, and a lot of personal testimony, and all that's fine. But when I got done with Hebrews, or should I say when Hebrews got done with me, my heart was established. It wasn't just my head that had knowledge. It wasn't just my memorization. My heart was established in the grace of God to the point that 
I've never been the same. I've been at rest in, in, my, in my heart condition in the Father ever since. And that's my prayer for you as we journey together in this book. Now, how we're going to break this up is in this first part, I want to really walk through what I think is the overarching theme and reasoning for the book of Hebrews. Why it exists, when it exists, to whom it exists, and then the overarching thing that it's trying to do. And if you can capture that overarching theme, then when you go to break down the insides, the guts of that book, it'll make sense. I think one of the reasons why we struggle with certain passages in the Bible is because we try to treat those passages as if they exist in a vacuum. We say, hey, how do you interpret such and so, chapter and verse? And then we go over and we read it, and then we try to give an interpretation, and we don't think about the fact that most of our interpretation is being filtered through what we think of other scriptures elsewhere, through what brother or sister so-and-so taught us, through what we have uh, as a revelation and other passages. And the, the, the last thing we do most of the time, and it should be the first thing we do, the last thing we do, if we do it at all, is think about who was the author writing to? Who wrote it? Why did they write it? What was going on in the world around them when they wrote this? How might their audience have interpreted this in a way that I'm not interpreting it? All of that stuff's not always easy to do, and that's why Bible study is essential and necessary. But another thing is to say, what does the Scriptures in front of it say? What do the Scriptures behind it say? What is this author trying to portray to me, trying to do uh, that I need to know about, and how would that help my interpretation? So we're going to do an overarching look at Hebrews so that if you have that overarching theme, taken care of and you know what's being done, it makes it a lot easier. And you'll find in some of the passages that are the most troublesome from the book of Hebrews are only troublesome because we're not thinking about context. Once we think about context, it begins to clear itself up. I think this will help you in all of the books of the Bible that you study, both Old and New Testaments. You put them in their proper context and in their proper place. So I think once you're finished, your heart will be established by grace and you'll be better equipped to handle this most amazing of books. Well, we are blessed that we have Hebrews. And what I mean by that is, if not for the book of Hebrews, I think we would, be, uh, we would, we would have a lot of gaps in our understanding of the new covenant. We would have some gaps in our understanding of the atonement. We would have some gaps in our understanding of just how finished the work is in regards to the efficacy of the old covenant and what it isn't able to do in us now. Without the book of Hebrews, we would be missing out on an understanding of why the old covenant had problems in the first place. Um, without the book of Hebrews, we would have trouble understanding the ideology of a sacrificial people like the Jews and Judaism in general and why it was necessary for us to move on from a world of sacrifices um, and a world of temple worship and a world of priestly tithe and all of those things. Without the book of Hebrews, we would be remiss to really come up with some answers on some of those things. And we are lucky, blessed, favored that we have it because when the Council of Nicaea met, the book of Hebrews almost missed the cut. It almost did not make it into the final cut of those books that we know comprise what we consider the Bible, especially the New Testament. And one of the reasons why it almost missed the cut was because, well, A, 
It uh, was very pointed. It's a book that by its very title is written to Jews. It's not written to what we would consider Christians. It's written to Hebrew people who have as their base of knowledge Hebrew scripture. And so I think the council might have felt as if you needed to understand Hebrew a little too much in order to properly understand the book of Hebrews. And there's some truth to that. What you don't know about Judaism and the Old Testament will hurt you when it comes to understanding what's being said in the book of Hebrews. But the other reason, and this was really the chief reason that it almost missed the cut, was because the book of Hebrews is not titled, it's not signed by anyone, and therefore it's very, it was very difficult a few hundred years after the fact to truly ascertain who the author was of the book of Hebrews. And that's a big deal because by not being able to identify the author, they couldn't give authenticity to this book. Well, the fact that it doesn't have a, an author listed has led to myriad ideas of who wrote the book. We don't necessarily know who wrote the book. You'll find some pretty good and pretty deep scholarly arguments on the side of the Apostle Paul, and you'll find some pretty deep scholarly arguments on the side of anyone else. Um, that's how down the middle we are on who wrote it. What we're pretty sure of is it was written prior to the mid-60s of A.D., A.D. 64, A.D. 65, and the reason for that is because around 64, Nero took the throne, and there's a passage late in the book that says that the Christians persecuted had not yet submitted to bloodshed, meaning they had not yet started to lose their lives for the cause, although that, according to the author, is they're right on the doorstep of that. So we're probably in the mid-60s because before 67, there's widespread bloodshed of Christians at the hands of the Roman emperor. So somewhere mid-60s, most definitely at least four or five years, or at least three or four years prior to the fall of the temple in AD 70. And that's how we can interpret some of the last day's comments from the book of Hebrews that are talking about the end of an era that the Hebrew people would have understood as the economy of Moses, temple sacrificial system. And so there's good internal evidence that it might be Paul based on the knowledge of Judaism and the law. There's also some pretty compelling evidence internally that it is not Paul. It's written in a style of Greek that Paul never used in any of his letters. Um, it internally refers to some things that don't sound quite like Paul. Paul, for instance, always refers to Timothy as his son in the Lord, but Hebrews refers to Timothy as our brother. Um, and Paul was a decidedly a disciple to the Gentiles. This book never mentions the Gentiles, and it is not pointed at the Gentiles. And it would be outside of what Paul considered his call to write the letter to the Hebrews. I personally kind of think of the way Martin Luther felt is that maybe it's Apollos, the most brilliant Jewish mind alive next to the Apostle Paul in his day, saved under the ministry of uh, Priscilla and Aquila who were saved under the ministry of Paul. And so his new covenant philosophy is very Pauline informed. I leave that to you, the student. It's one of the glories of being able to search this stuff out for yourself is to really come to a conclusion on who wrote it. And um, I don't really think coming to a conclusion on that matters. One of the beautiful things is whoever wrote it is there's such a glorious harmony between what is quoted in the Old Testament in this book and what is written elsewhere in the New Testament by not only Paul, but by the other gospel writers as well, be it Peter or John. Uh, there's such a great harmony as to what comes in the book of Hebrews that uh, without a doubt it needed to make the cut. Thank God it did. 
and, and then we get a, a wonderful example of uh, what was happening in the world of its time. Now that is a very important point I want to stop and make for a moment because to me, if you don't catch this next two, three, four minutes, um, this, book, the, we, this book will have no overarching arching theme if we don't do this. Here are the foundation stones, really, of what the book of Hebrews is all about. It is written to Hebrews. That means it is written to a Jewish audience, namely to people who could trace their bloodline of, at the time back to Abraham, the circumcision father of their quote-unquote faith, the family of Jews whose, whose religion is Judaism but who are known by the nomenclature Hebrews, all of those who had crossed the, promise, the Jordan into the Promised Land and were a part of the 12 tribes of Israel. However, it is not written to a Jew who does not practice faith in Christ. It's, it's written and it's told from the very first verses. It is, and we'll get into those verses in a moment, but it's written from the perspective of someone who knows his audience, knows Judaism, both the law and the prophets, but have now come to faith in Christ. These individuals are Jews who have come to Jesus. Probably no one would have called them Christians. Maybe they would have, but these people still considered themselves Jewish. They just felt like their Messiah had come and that his name is Jesus. But they were living in a world ruled by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had given an exemption to Judaism in the first century, actually a little prior to what we know as the first century, they had given an exemption to the Jewish people that exempted them from mandatory emperor worship. Starting with Caesar Augustus, the second Caesar of Rome, uh, Rome was basically a state religion. Uh, the state religion was the cult of the emperor. You worshiped the emperor as the son of God. One of the first usages of the word gospel is not used by Jews or Christians, but is used by the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, who declared himself to be the presenter of the gospel, good news, there's a new king on the throne, there's a new emperor. And he, he declared this after his victory in the Roman civil war over Mark Anthony. And that good news went out that there's a new king on the throne. Christianity uses that imagery throughout the New Testament as good news. There's a new king on the throne and his name isn't Caesar. And from its earliest onset, Christianity faces an enormous struggle, an uphill climb. And one of the reasons for that is because Rome was very tolerant of foreign religions as long as you included emperor worship in your sort of your program of, of religion. So you could worship whatever you wanted or nothing at all as long as you honored Caesar by considering him the son of God and by worshiping him as God on the earth. And by worship, it didn't necessarily mean offer sacrifices or get down on your knees or sing praise songs, but to verbally acknowledge the kingship of Caesar. The Jews had an exemption. It was one of the things that they had worked out um, with the, the Roman Empire is that they were the one religion inside of the empire that was allowed to call Jehovah their one God. Um, the Romans were intrigued by the monotheistic Jews, a, a group of people who served only one God, while the Romans were polytheistic. There was a God for everything, much like the Greeks. They were so intrigued by the Jews, they allowed them to do it. They said, these 
these uh, Jewish people, they looked at them as strange and odd, an oddity, but they respected their right to be able to claim Jehovah. There was no such exemption for this offshoot of Judaism. And believe me, at the first century, that's what Christianity was considered, an offshoot of Judaism. It took years for, for Christianity to break out of the mold of Jews receiving Jesus. It took years. And, and in fact, we don't see it until almost the middle of the book of Acts, that, or at least the, the end of the first third of Acts, before the house of Cornelius is getting saved, before there's this widespread attempt to get Gentiles saved. Middle of the book of Acts, we still have Gentile. It's an argument of where the Gentiles can even be saved. And if they can, should they look more Jewish once they get saved? And that's a big fight. And so Christianity is fighting an uphill battle with Judaism. It's fighting an uphill battle with Rome because Rome won't give them the exemption. So what happens by the time the book of Hebrews comes along in the 60s AD is that Christianity is starting to be persecuted they're right on the threshold of the bloodshed we mentioned a moment ago, and it will get bad uh, in the next few years. Um, but the exemption, and I, I want to I read for you what I, I, I thought was a, a, a pretty powerful quote from E. Bruce Brooks' his book, Jesus and After, and I'll put it on the screen for you, his book subtitled The First 80 Years. He says this, Once the Jesus followers left the synagogue and the fellowship of the Jews, they also forfeited the Jewish exemption from emperor worship and were liable to the death penalty, which was the cost of refusing it. In other words, the Jews had an exemption that they could say, no, Jehovah is the one God, but Christians were not allowed to say, Yeshua, Jesus is the Christ. He is the one God. And so what was happening is there was an enormous amount of people who had come up through Judaism and had converted to Christianity while not abandoning their Judaism. They continued to go to the temple. They continued to offer animal sacrifice. They continued to tithe into the priesthood. They continued to worship using the incense and hearing the sound of the bells on the priest's robe. But they accepted Jesus as their sacrifice. But when they were cornered by the Roman authorities as to who was God, they would go back to being Jewish and they would say Jehovah is God because they knew if they said Yeshua, Jesus Christ, Yeshua Christos, if they said that, then they would be imprisoned. And the book of Hebrews come into existence to confront Hebrews who had accepted Christ but were both going back to Moses when it came time to avoid Roman persecution and they were going back to Moses when it came time to offer sacrifices, observe uh, Sabbaths, observe new moons, observe feast days. They were hedging, I like to say it this way, they were hedging their bets against, um, do I know for sure if I am what I say I am? Am I one of the sons of God? Is Jesus the real way? Okay, I'll accept Jesus, but what would it hurt for me to also sacrifice a lamb. I'll accept Jesus, but what would it hurt? Just to be safe, I'll also keep going to the synagogue, and I'll also keep going to the temple, and I'll keep purchasing a lamb once in a while, and I'll tithe into the priesthood once in a while. What would it hurt? It can't hurt. I have Jesus on the inside. I have Moses on the outside. And you might say, well, um, that, that was probably a minority, but I actually argue that I think it was the majority, and here's why. There's nothing in the world more powerful than the sense of smell 
and the sense of uh, smells the most powerful, but that sensory perception of hearing and seeing. And the old covenant was very physical. We'll get to that in a moment why that was so important. But I think whenever you went into Jerusalem or Rome and you walk past the temple, let's say Jerusalem, and there's that massive, beautiful Herod's temple, and you are confronted with all of the sights and sounds of the religion of your childhood, the smell of the sacrificial meat sizzling on the altar and the incense oil wafting through the air, the sight of the smoke coming up off the brazen altar, the noise that the bleating sheeps make, the feeling of, of, of hearing the blood splatter against the floor as the, as the sacrifice is performed on behalf of some penitent sinner. And this knowledge that this connects you to your dad and your grandpa and, your, and all the way back to Abraham, all the stories you've heard your entire life, the sights, the smells, the sounds. And while you're walking down the street in Jerusalem on your way to Bible study, I, I know that's, a, uh, that's, that's not the way it would have been, but, but while you're walking down the street on your way to an assembly of believers in Christ at someone's home, this private meeting, while you're on your way, you smell those lambs, you smell the, the incense, and you're drawn almost uncontrollably back to Moses. And so you wander over into the temple and you go, well, what would it hurt? And you pay your coins and you buy a lamb and you offer a sacrifice. And then you go on down to the house to meet with the fo secret followers of Christ. The book of Hebrews exists to tell that person that is no longer allowed this old covenant system is coming to an end. We do not go back to where we were. And why we need to know that is because the book of Hebrews is a series of peaks and valleys going up and down that hill of showing you where Moses was and then showing you what that will do to you and then showing you the superiority of Christ. And so from the beginning of the book, over and over and over again, the author tries to convince his Hebrew brothers and sisters of the superiority of Christ. That's a phrase I want you to keep in mind as you study the book of Hebrews. The superiority of Christ, greater than everything else. Christ greater than everything Moses had to offer. Christ greater than everything Judaism had to offer. And that to leave Christ, to go back to those forms or formulas of Judaism, was to trample over the blood of Christ. It was to crucify Him afresh. It was to go back to a system of performance. And where the book of Hebrews mirrors the teachings of the Apostle Paul, and it's why some feel like he might have wrote Hebrews, where it mirrors it so well is, for instance, at the end of Galatians 4, on into Galatians 5, when Paul makes the argument that Jerusalem of today is in bondage with her children, and that if you seek to go back to the works of the law to be justified, you are fallen from grace. The whole message of Hebrews is, don't go back, don't go back. There's nothing to go back to. Jesus is better. And how you and I can interpret that today, and we'll try to land here in just a little bit, but how you and I can interpret that today is that there's nothing that, us, that we can go back to in our performance that is as good or better than what Jesus has already provided for us. And so just as there's a specific warning in the book of Hebrews to Jewish people from going back, there's a very non-specific warning in all of us non-Jews when we read it. And it's not specific to lambs and temples and sacrifice, but it is specific to don't go back to anything. Never go back, always go forward. There's nothing to be gained in the new covenant 
under the provisions of the old covenant. There's nothing to be gained through performance that cannot be gained through promise. There's nothing that you can find in your own works or your own effort that you cannot find a superior, better version of in Jesus Christ, he of the better covenant and the better promises. All right, now, that was a long introduction. Actually, it wasn't that long. Not when you consider all that you need to talk about, and we'll have more to do in an introductory capacity in the next session, uh, some things that we need to say about the book of Hebrews. But for now, I want to jump back to the beginning. We've read to you one verse from the end of the book, that your hearts will be established in grace. That's my goal. And I think even as we lay out the introduction, you can feel your heart start to settle down a little bit like, wow, what an adventure this book must be. This is going to be such a spotlight on the Lord Jesus. Honestly, I don't know if there's a book in the New Testament outside of the Gospels that, spots like G that spotlights Jesus any more than the book of Hebrews. A light shines on him from the very beginning. Watch this most poetic but most important of openings. And by the way, the only book of the entire Bible in the English language that opens with the word God. Hebrews 1.1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. And there are a couple of things about this opening passage that lay the tone for the entire book that is to follow. One, in the past, God spoke through prophets from time to time. In other words, there were seasons in which God spoke and there were seasons in which God did not. Man, that is so atypical of an old covenant world. As long as the people were doing this, God was doing that. When the people were doing that, God was doing that. In times past, God spoke to us through people. But has now, and here's the other thing that sets the tone for this book, in these last days spoken to us by His Son. In other words, the book of Hebrews exists at the end of something. You might think when you read that verse, it exists at the end of the world. But that was 2,000 years ago, so it can't be the end of the world. It existed at the end of an era, at the end of an epoch, at the end of an age. That confirms some things Jesus said in the gospel, specifically in the book of Matthew. And so the end of the age was upon them, and the end of the age meant the end of the way things had been done before, the end of the world as they knew it. And in these last days, God has already spoken to us through Jesus. And so you now see that from the beginning, the book of Hebrews is going to be a comparison book. Here's how God did it. Here's how God has done it. God's not going to do it any other way. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So the chiefest voice of God is Jesus. And there's something else that you derive from this passage. He has appointed him heir of all things, through whom also he made the world's, verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so what we see in verse 3 is that Jesus is the exact likeness of God. The book of Hebrews claims that if you've seen Jesus, you've seen what God looks like. This is also confirmed by John's gospel in the 14th chapter when Philip says, Lord, 
Uh, all these words are, are nice, but just show us the Father. And Jesus says, Philip, how long must I be with you before you know that if you see me, you have seen the Father? And in other words, if you want to know what God looks like, don't go to the book of Exodus. Don't go to the book of Leviticus. If you want to see what God looks like, go to Jesus. And the book of Hebrews lays out a Jesus. And, and here's, here's where I want to take you. Let's, let's, just, let's take a, a move left to right through the book. The overarching pattern is that you, when you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. When you want to know what the end of the Mosaic economy, the end of the world as they knew it looks like, look at the era of Jesus and the apostles and the book of Hebrews and that entire New Covenant, New Testament rather, New Testament era. You want to know what God looked like, look at Jesus. If you want to know how superior Jesus is to all of the Old Covenant things, then take a walk left to right through the book of Hebrews. Now, of course, if you're going to have a study on um, the book of Hebrews, no matter how many parts it is, it would do you well to read it. Um, so if you haven't taken the time, and I know that seems silly, who wouldn't have taken the time? Well, maybe it's been a while. If you haven't taken the time to read the book of Hebrews, uh, I think you'll want to desperately after we get done with this study, but I would also encourage you, do so. Go and read left to right this powerful book and watch. I'm going to hit some highlights with you, so grab an ink pen. And uh, we're going to read enough text um, that over this lesson and the next, I won't put them all on the screen. Um, uh, you, you have a Bible. You can follow along. I encourage you to do so. Pause as you go. Maybe jot some things in your margin to help you with this left to right work through the book of Hebrews because I want to show you through some of these passages the superiority of Christ to everything that preceded him. And if Jesus was superior to everything that a Hebrew knew, he remains superior to everything that you and I as Gentiles know. The first thing that Hebrews shows Jesus is superior to is the voice of the prophets from Hebrews 1, 1, and 2, that God used to speak through the voice of prophets, but now he has spoken to us through Jesus. Never put someone else's word over the words of Jesus, no matter who it is. The warning is against taking the words, even of those first century apostles, to be of more import than the words spoken to us by Jesus. We must concentrate on the words spoken to us by Jesus. They are crucial. For too long, we've tried to silence the lamb at the expense of other New Testament writers. We'll say things like Jesus was, uh, you, can't, you don't need to pay attention to everything Jesus said because he's talking to an old covenant audience. That, careful with that. Pay attention to what he says. Even if he is saying things that to an old covenant audience, figure out what it meant in their context and what it means to you because there's something important happening there. Verse 4 tells us that he's become so much better than the angels because he has received an inheritance. And so while Jesus is better than all other voices, Jesus is also superior to angels. Most of Hebrews chapter 1 deals with the superiority of Jesus to angels. I think another reason why the book of Hebrews has, is not in great favor with a lot of people is because from the very outset, it's different. It's a little confusing. It opens with God. It talks about last days. And then it spends a whole chapter showing how Jesus is bigger than angels. But in the modern Christian vernacular, we don't hold angels in that high of a regard. In fact, I've received questions to my ministry as to whether they're even real. Well, I do believe they're real. I don't think the Bible would waste a whole lot of time with something, and it talks a lot about them, both old and new, if they weren't relevant. 
Um, our world doesn't see the import of, of Hebrews 1, but the Hebrew world of, of the author's day did. In fact, uh, the Hebrews had a long and storied history of talking to angels, praying to angels, and at times even worshiping angels. And you'll notice in a lot of the Old Testament passages, when God shows up on the scene, they'll begin to, or when an angel shows up, they'll worship that angel. And God has to sometimes tell them, stop it. I'm, I'm not who you think I am. That even happens in the book of Revelation when John the Revelator tries to worship and the angel goes, no, I'm, I'm, don't worship me. And so the superiority of Jesus to angels is to show Jesus as superior to all of the forms of messenger um, that you had known under an old covenant system. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14, "...inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil." Jesus is superior to the devil. Jesus is superior to all of the enemies of light. The book of Hebrews wants to lay out from the outset that there is no enemy who has any strength on par with that of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think one of the great tragedies that we make in modern Christendom is giving so much respect to the devil as if he holds all of this enormous power and that we have to learn how to pray him out and cast him out. Man, what the cross did to, to break the back of the devil can never be duplicated by your fasting, by your quotations, by your memorization, by your discipline. What Christ did is break the power of the one who has kept us in bondage for so long. And so Jesus superior to the voices of, the, of, of prophetic, Jesus superior to the messengers of, and the angels, Jesus superior to the devil. Look at Hebrews chapter 3. I encourage you to read verses 1 to 6 where it tells us, that Moses was faithful in his house. Every house is built by someone, um, but he who built all things is God. Verse 5, Moses was faithful in his house as a servant for a testimony of the things which would be spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Here's Jesus superior to Moses. Here's something else. Jesus, a son, superior to Moses, a servant. It's, it tells you that Moses was faithful over his house as a servant. Jesus is faithful over his house as a son. Sidebar, sons are superior to servants. He is not working to bring a bunch of servants home. He's, br he's bringing sons. And we'll get into that in part two when we start to break down some of the key features of the book of Hebrews that really need brought to light. But in an overarching way, Jesus superior to Moses was throwing a hand grenade in the middle of a Hebrew crowd because there was no voice to a Hebrew crowd superior to the voice of Moses. He's the apex. He even physically goes to the apex of the mountain of Sinai. He goes to the top of the mountain and he spends time alone with God and he receives tablets of stone written by the finger of God. You can't get better. You can't get closer to God than Moses. And so it, it's, it's throwing a hand grenade in the midst of this audience to say Jesus is superior to Moses because it is saying that the man Christ Jesus is even superior to the author of the law. And, and, and so whatever he says is of greater importance. It's why people are arguing backwards to you when they argue the Old Testament legal code. 
And they go, well, look at this. Look what has to be done under the law. And this is the way we ought to be living. And then they don't take it to Jesus. Look, I understand the utility of looking at the law if you want to understand how you ought to treat your neighbor. There's some very, very important things there. In fact, the law was trying to get us to the point where we would treat our neighbor the way we treat ourselves. Um, Jesus said, on these hang the law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, he also said what we call the golden rule, do unto others you'd have them do unto you. Jesus said, for this is the law and the prophets. In other words, you want to know what the law and the prophets was trying to get you to do? Treat your neighbor well. So using the law is appropriate if you want to understand how to love people as far as you go, well, you weren't supposed to kill them, you weren't supposed to steal from them, you weren't supposed to cheat on them. Perfect. Great. Those are great parameters. Of course, we don't use that to determine our righteousness. Israel tried that, didn't work because you can't be righteous by doing righteous. It's not a condition of action, it's a condition of the heart. And so we're not trying to be good servants by observing the law, we're trying to, be, we're trying to live as sons by following Jesus. So to say Jesus is superior to Moses was to say sons are superior to servants. And so don't look at your relationship with the Father as one of master and slave. Uh, look at your relationship as He's my Father and I am His Son. In, in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, read down through 14 and 15 where it shows you that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. It's Jesus, the Son of God, and we need to hold fast our profession because we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. This is saying that Jesus was superior to the high priest of Israel. Who was the original high priest of Israel? Aaron. And as you read from here on in Hebrews, you're going to see Aaron's name pop up once in a while. It's because the author is now establishing that Jesus is better than... He's already told you Jesus is better than Moses. Now he's telling you Jesus is better than Aaron. Jesus is better than the high priest. The high priest is the holiest place you could arrive. And it had to be by birthright. But it was the holiest place you could arrive in all of the Jewish system. And this says Jesus is better than our other high priests because our other high priests have natural weaknesses. And our Jesus has no natural weaknesses. And our high priests don't know how you live because they don't live like you. They don't live like the normal person. They don't live like the guy on the street. But our Jesus did. And that makes him superior in every way to the high priest. Hebrews chapter 6 tells us, to leave the verse one, to leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ and go on to perfection. Jesus is superior to all of the old ways of perfection. You thought you could live the law to be perfect. You thought you could live the law and that would make you good. Hebrews 6 says, forget that. Go on past all of those things and go into perfection. In actuality, the word perfection there is the word maturity. Go on past all of that other stuff and go on into a place of maturity. This, this Hebrew 6 is a, is a spot that in part 2 we will break down the things we're actually told to walk away from because I think this is one of the highlight points of Hebrews. Um, we're going to walk through them and show you because Hebrews 6 is one of those scary passages people have in regards to this book. But it's one of those spots where we'll, we'll go detail to detail. But as an overarching theme, realize that it's one more step by the author to say, we go past performances to reach, to reach maturity 
and we move on into Christ to reach maturity. In other words, Christ is better than the law for your spiritual maturity. I like to say this, knowing Christ and who He is is a superior, a superior way to grow up in the Spirit than through performance. And so it's why there's no clock on how fast you can grow up under the new covenant. Uh, under the old covenant, there was a clock. I mean, you could only do, you couldn't even read some passages of the Bible until you were a certain age. Did you know you couldn't read the Song of Solomon until you were 30 in the Old Testament world? So there was literally a clock on when you could be considered mature. Under the new covenant, we go on in, into our maturity in Christ. We don't go on to our maturity in performance. And so there is no clock on how fast you can grow up in following the Spirit. Um, that's why you are at an advantage if someone teaches you how to follow the Holy Spirit or what it means to follow the Holy Spirit as a young person because you might avoid some of the pitfalls of life because you have an internal clock. You have that barometer of the Holy Spirit. Um, so Jesus was better than the method of maturity under the Old Covenant. Look at this one, priesthood. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. If perfection were through the Levitical priesthood... For under it, the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there's also a change of the law. I'm going to go ahead and read down through 16 and 17. You can look at it as well. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, that's Jesus, from which no man has officiated at the altar. And there's never been a priest from the tribe of Judah. For it's evidence that our Lord rose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood, and it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Jesus is superior to the priesthood, not only to Moses, not only to Aaron the high priest, not only to the methods used by the priest and used by Israel in their worship. But Jesus is superior to the entire priesthood himself. He is a new priesthood. He is a superior priesthood. He is greater than that priesthood which they have left behind. Look at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. He has now obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he's also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Jesus is superior to the old covenant. Jesus is superior to the old promise. All you have to do is go identify everything identified with the old covenant and everything identified under an old promissory system and then put Jesus up against it. Jesus is better in every way. And we literally have the phrase in the English, a better covenant built upon better promises. And in our next segment, we'll go through why the old covenant needed to be improved upon, what made it faulty. If you need better covenants and better promises, and then there was a problem in the old one. Then what was the problem and how did he fix it? And the book of Hebrews is glad to tell you that. But again, overarching, trying to see Jesus as superior. Here's another amazing one from Hebrews 9, verse 11. Christ came as high priest of good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Jesus introduces you to a better tabernacle, a better temple. It literally uses the phrase greater. So Jesus was better than the, and I'm going to quote, I'm going to use a phrase that would have been common to a Jew first century. Jesus is better than the heaven on earth setting in Jerusalem. For a Jew, heaven on earth was not a condition. It was a place. And that place was the temple. 
Heaven was where God resided on the earth and where God resided on the earth was the temple. That's why they couldn't offer sacrifices anywhere but at the temple because you had to bring them to God. That's an old covenant paradigm. You bring things to God, he's in one spot. He moves, you move. New covenant, God brings things to you. He brings gifts to men. You move, he moves. It's not about what you can bring to him. It's what he brings to you under the new covenant that, that then elicits a response out of you for what you bring to him. This is one of the great beauties of that new covenant reality. So Christ, a greater temple. Here's another one, chapter 9, the next verse, verse 12. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus gives a better sacrifice. Old blood, blood, the old covenant blood come from a lamb, a bullock, a turtle dove, whatever. It uh, had to be repeated over and over and over again. Jesus comes with a better sacrificial system, better blood, better in every way. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. The law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. The law was merely a shadow. Jesus became the substance. So Jesus was superior in every way to everything that the law had to offer. Now, we've been climbing a hill with this author. If you watch from Hebrews 1.1 all the way up through what we just read in Hebrews 10, think about what he has done to his audience. Hey, guys, Jesus is better than the voice of your, your old prophets. Jesus is better than your angels. Jesus is better than the devil and all the powers of darkness. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Aaron. Jesus is, is uh, better than performance for maturity. Jesus is better than a natural priesthood. Jesus is a better covenant built on better promises. Jesus is a better temple and tabernacle than the one standing in Jerusalem. Jesus' blood is better than bulls, goats, lambs, pigeons, and turtle doves. Jesus' law of liberty is greater than the law of Moses and Sinai. In every way, Jesus is superior. And that's why every injunction in the book of Hebrews to don't go back, don't go back to that system, don't trample the blood afresh, is because what we've been telling the audience is Jesus is better, there's nothing to go back to. Here's what's the most important thing about all of that uphill battle we've just been doing. Hopefully it's not a battle. I think it's, it's going left to right. It's climbing a hill of superior, superior, superior. But my heart sings when I read it. I think maybe yours does too. So it's almost like we're rolling downhill with him. Like, this is easy. We're watching him build a case. But this is where it gets the most exciting. Everything under the old covenant was entirely physical. What I call a tangibleness of the old covenant. You could see it, you could smell it, you could hear it, you could taste it. You could taste the meat off the altar or the shoe bread from the holy place. You could smell the blood, the guts, the flayed meat, and the incense wafting from the anointing oil. You could see the beauty of the temple, the, the assemblage of the priests, the colors of his robe, the, the jewels that beset his breastplate, the turban that sat on his head. You could see the shining gold 
of the candlestick and the shoe bread table. You could feel the wool of the lamb and the slicing of the knife as it ripped that body apart and laid it out. You could see and feel the, the heat off the altar. You could hear the sound of the bells on the bottom of the high priest's robe, the, the, the clanging of the bell and the pomegranate, and the bell and the pomegranate. You could hear the sound of that and the sizzle of the meat on the altar. All of these physical things. You could touch everything. You could touch the temple and the animals and the knife and the blood. Everything under the old covenant was entirely tangible. And then came Jesus. He died. He resurrected. He ascended. He disappeared. His reappearance was in the form of the Holy Spirit, what Paul would call the great mystery revealed unto us through the Gentiles, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul would write to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6 that we, or 5 that we no longer know Him according to the flesh. In other words, we don't touch Him, taste Him, hear Him, smell Him. That's gone. What we have now is an invisible Christ. The author of the book of Hebrews has been pointing out the tangible from the beginning. Audible words, visible temples, the smells, the sights, the tastes, and the sounds. Moseses and Aaron's and priests and temples and sacrifices and all of the formulas of Judaism. And then he arrives at the great invisibleness of who Jesus is and warns us that we can't go back to being obsessed with the physical now that we've been given the invisible. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39. And these two verses are definitely two I am going to put on your screen that I want you to see for sure and mark them in your Bible. The last verse of 10 and the first verse of 11. Hebrews 10, 39. We are not of those who draw back to perdition, that's a word for destruction. But we are of those who believe to the saving of the soul. We're not going back, he says. We're not going back to our own destruction. Go back to what? To all the stuff Jesus is superior than. That's why we've done all this work. We're not going back to the voices of the prophets. We're not going back to angels. We're not going back to talking, thinking constantly about the devil. We're not going back to an obsession with Moses or high priests or Aaron or natural priesthoods or temples or lambs or bullocks. We're not going back because all of that was the substance of an old covenant, but in reality, it was all shadow. It was trying to get us another, to another place. What is it trying to take us to? Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What is the one thing that we have that is now our substance? Faith. Jesus is superior to all the other stuff. And strangely, you could touch all the other stuff. You could taste all the other stuff. You could smell all the other stuff. That's why the old covenant didn't need your faith. Because you don't need faith for what you can see. You just open your eyes and look at it. You don't need faith for what you can smell. Just smell it. You don't need faith for what you can taste. Just taste it. But the new covenant, the Holy Spirit's invisible. Jesus isn't visible. 
None of the stuff we talk about is visible. What's left? Now, faith is the substance. Faith is that which we can wrap our hearts around. And not only can we, we must. Because to step back from faith is to go back to the natural things of the old covenant. And while you may think, well, I'm just hedging my bets by offering up a lamb, what can it hurt? The author of Hebrews is saying, I'll tell you what it can hurt. It's to take a step away from faith. and It's to go back to the natural realm. Having come into the knowledge of who you are in Christ, resting in grace and His finished work, to take a step back to your own performance is to take a step back into the old covenant. And guess what? You're a Gentile. You didn't even belong into the Old Covenant. It's the most confusing thing in the world that those of us who come in with nothing more than faith could ever think that by one of our performances or our works, we could go back, we could do better than what the finished work of Jesus has done on our behalf. From Hebrews 11 on through into chapter 12, every person in this next chapter Start, the, the phrase starts with faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Why? Because for an entire book, the author's been going, Jesus is better than that, 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 and that. Now what do you have? Faith. Now let me show you that faith was all that ever really worked. And then it's Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, etc., etc., etc. But it never mentions their works it mentions their faith. It's as if the author realizes, hey, I've built my case for the superiority of Christ. Now I want to build it showing you that it was always supposed to be that way. Everything else was wrong. It was supposed to be by faith. It's the heartbeat of God. All the people that never did anything great did it because they were faithful people, not because they were better than you, not because they were smarter than you, not because they outworked you. It was faith. And he goes, faith is what you have left, but don't get discouraged. It's all you need. It's all you ever needed. That's what Hebrews is trying to preach to us. Now, I don't want to give you anything from 12 yet um, and most of 13 yet because I'm saved. There's a lot we want to try to cover in part two that are really seven specific things that the book of Hebrews brings out that if it were not for Hebrews, we would not have. And man, that is going to be such a fun journey together in part two. So I want to close very closely to where we started in Hebrews chapter 13. Um, verse 9 was where we opened, but I want to put 8 together with verse 9 to show you why verse 8 is a verse you have memorized, whether you know it or not, and why it is so important to us. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it's good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who've been occupied with them. All the other stuff in the past, he said, has passed away. All the physicalities of the old covenant passed away. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Jesus I've just presented to you, he says in this book, the superior Jesus, is going to be superior forever. He cannot be topped. Anything else is a strange doctrine. He said, let your heart, rather, be established in grace I hope what we've done together for the last 50 plus minutes has started the process of settling your heart on grace, but has also ignited you, inspired you, fired you up 
I would encourage before we go to part two, read the 13 chapters of the book of Hebrews. Take your time, relax and enjoy. Now you've got an overarching framework by which to work. In the next segment of part two, we're going to do a little more preview work on what the book of Hebrews is about contextually. But then we are going to go through what I consider seven highlights. We'll go left to right in the book of Hebrews that if it were not for that passage, we would not know what we know in the New Testament about them. There are so, it was difficult to get it down to seven, but we, for brevity's sake, we need to, be, to do exactly that. And then we'll bring it right back to hearts established by grace. I'm already looking forward to part two. I think you are as well. I'm praying this settles in your heart that it's the beginning of a great journey. May your heart be established in grace. God bless you.